Genesis 25, beginning in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paran Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. First came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Jacob. Or Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is God's word. You can be seated. Lord God, you have preserved this writing, inspired by your spirit, spoken through your spirit, through the prophet Moses. And you kept this so that we could read it today. Help us to understand why you've kept this for us. Help us, Lord, to see your sovereign grace at work and your glory in this text. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, some of you are new with us since we last left the brothers Isaac and Ishmael standing there by Abraham's graveside way back in May of this year. And I think the rest of us could use a little refresher, so I, so I want to remind you of why the book of Genesis is in the Bible. The 12 tribes of Israel originally would have received this book as a part of Moses' compilation of writings. They would have received this book after their redemption from slavery in Egypt. So Israel is down in Egypt, they're in slavery, they come up out of Egypt, they're about to go into the promised land, and they get these writings and in this book, they are being taught here, or they're being reminded of two fundamental lessons. First lesson is about God, who their God is, what he's done for them. Secondly, they learn about themselves, who they are, where they come from. A great deal of wisdom can be had by gaining a right understanding of those two subjects who God is, and who we are. When we rightly know who God is, we recognize his greatness, his majesty, his wisdom, his virtue, his goodness, his light, his worthiness for worship. And when we rightly understand who we are, we see that we are first of all created by God for his glory, that we belong to him somehow, but we also see that we're sinners, don't we? That we're weak, that we're depraved, that we're small, 
and powerless, and there is darkness in us, and something is very wrong. We are needy for the Lord, dependent on Him, and yet we can see we don't deserve His blessings. So the bridge, then, between God and man is God's grace. Genesis, as a book, is very much about the grace of God. Way back when we started studying Genesis together in 2022, so a good good long time ago, I I titled our series, The Dawn of Grace, because Genesis is is exactly that. It's where the good news of God's grace begins for Israel and in a much longer story for us, which turns us then back to God. If anyone has been shown the grace of God, they have to ask this question, why? Have you ever asked that? We mostly speak of the grace of God in terms of salvation. And so we have to ask at some point in our Christian lives, God, why did you save me? And I can ask you, is it because of how smart you are? Is it because of how strong you are? Is it because of how beautiful you are? Is it because of your artistic ability or your musical ability? Is it because of your your business sense or your, your creativity? Is it because of your usefulness to God, to his kingdom? Is it because you have great theology? Because you listen to Romans 9 and say, yeah, this is my team. Is it because on balance you're a pretty good person? To which I would hope you would say, no, it's none of those things. God saved me because I believe that Jesus died for me. Then we have to ask another question because that doesn't, the, 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 the whys don't stop there. Why? Why do you believe when so many people who are smarter than you don't believe? Is it because believing in Christ's work for you requires a certain amount of intellect but not too much? But then there are those who believe are not quite as smart as you. So what of them? Is it because of the family that you come from that you believe? Certainly that's not it either, is it? There are many of us who come from Christian parents who have non-believing siblings. All else being equal, why is it that some believe and some do not? The truth is, there isn't a formula for it. Your believing in Jesus as the Christ and your trusting in his finished work has nothing to do with anything in you. It has everything to do with God. You believe because he has revealed himself to you in truth. According to God's own good pleasure, he's revealed to you the essential truth. He is God, you're not, and because of your sin, you're under his wrath, and because of that, he's shown you that Jesus Christ, his son, is your only hope, your only savior. And if you're a Christian today, it's because God has revealed that essential saving knowledge to your heart in such a way that you can't deny it. And God did that for you because God loves you. We sang so beautifully and yet so simply at Nancy's funeral yesterday. You love Jesus because he first loved you. 
Well, Israel wrestled with this same question, why us, why me? As they're coming up out of slavery in Egypt and they're preparing to go into the land of promise, they're asking that. Lord, why, why has Yahweh rescued us? Who are we? And God answers them in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, for you, talking to the Israelites, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's not because you are more in number than any other people. In other words, it's not because of your power that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, it's the same story, isn't it? God's grace isn't dependent on something in the people of Israel. God's grace depends on God and his love and his faithfulness to his promises. And this begins the, 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 the great story of our redemption. And all of that begins in Genesis. J. Gresham Mation puts it this way, the very center and core of the whole Bible center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. The grace of God, which depends not one whit upon anything that is in man, but is absolutely undeserved, resistless, and sovereign. So, so, so if Israel is to understand why they are, or rather who they are and who God is, and if they are to understand why God saved them, they must understand Genesis. That's why God has given it to them. And more precisely, they must understand the story of Jacob. And the same is true for you. If you want to understand why God chose you to receive his grace, you've got to understand why God chose Jacob. And what you're going to see is that God's sovereign grace, that means his, his, his grace depended on him and his power and his glory, God's sovereign grace is much less about Jacob and much more about God. The story begins with a plot that is familiar to us as we've been studying Genesis. The story begins with a plot of barrenness. So we see this in beginning in verse 19. So look at uh, Genesis 25, 19. These are the generations of Isaac. Now that generations phrase, we know that's been repeated throughout Genesis. There are 10 generations phrases or Toledot's stories in Genesis. We are on, I think, number eight now. So these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 when he took Rebekah, the daughter. And there's the rest of Rebekah's story. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So Rebekah is barren. Barrenness goes back to Isaac's mother, Sarah. But that difficulty in childbearing in general, which barrenness is a subset of, that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Let's visit Genesis 3 as another refresher. It's a very, very, very important chapter in the book of Genesis. That's the stage. So after the fall, Genesis 3 verse 15 contains one of the most important promises of the entire Bible. God tells the serpent who had deceived the woman, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. 
So there's the promise right there, Genesis 3, after the fall, you have the promise of the one who is to come, the offspring of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent, or as John put it in that passage Josh preached a few weeks ago, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. This is the hope of Genesis. It's always there. It's always there in the background. Think of Genesis 3.15 as a little nightlight. Even when everything else is dark, we can find our way around Genesis and what, what, what's happening, what God is doing in Genesis by that little light. The Messiah, the offspring of the woman, is coming. And it's as good as God's word. But the promised offspring will not come easily. Because in the very next verse, Genesis 3.16, God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. That pain, or what we could be translate, what can be easily translated as difficulty, and some of your Bibles say that, that difficulty in childbearing is fulfilled in the lives of the women through whom the promise of Genesis 3.15 continues. Many of these women are barren. Sarah is barren. Rebecca is barren. Rachel will be barren. Just in, not, not just in Genesis, but there will be more of this mysterious barrenness as the, as the Bible story unfolds. Barrenness is a major theme in Genesis because God is reminding us that while the woman, Eve, sought to be self-sufficient and wise, independent of God, the Lord's great lesson is that the promise will only come through dependence on God. There must be a great undoing of man's independence. And it will be seen in God's power to bring life to barren wombs. Like Adam and Eve, Sarah and Abraham after them tried to avoid this dependence on the Lord. And they attempted to solve the problem of barrenness by going outside of God's design for marriage. Sarah told Abraham to have a child with Hagar instead. And like Adam, Abraham listened to the voice of his wife But their man-made independence solution only brought more difficulty, didn't it? And that is a difficulty that Isaac, who is the father in our story today, it's a difficulty that he knows all too well because Ishmael was his stepbrother. God taught Sarah and Abraham that he would fulfill his promise, but he would do it his way, in his timing, by his design, and he did. Abraham and Sarah were ancient when he did it, but the point of Isaac's life is that he exists. He's he's here in Genesis 25 because of God's power and not Abraham's power. The the promise of Genesis 3.15, the grace that God is showing to his people and bringing the Christ who is to come, that grace is wholly dependent on God's power and not Abraham's, which brings us back to verse 21 of our text. In response to his own wife's barrenness, Isaac prays. Isaac is doing something that we never saw Abraham do, at least not like this. He's praying. And you're like, well, but Abraham did a lot of stuff with the Lord. And you're right. Abraham walked with the Lord. He talked with the Lord. He went to the Lord. He worshiped the Lord. He was a friend of the Lord. He sat and had a meal with the Lord. He covenanted with the Lord. He even negotiated with the Lord and reasoned with him. But for some reason, Genesis never plainly says, as it does here, that Abraham prayed to the Lord. In fact, the word that we translate as pray here in verse 21 is used only here in Genesis. This is the only place. 
It's used a couple times in Exodus, same author, Moses. And in Exodus, it describes, this word prayed, it describes a pleading with the Lord. Moses prays in this way in Exodus after he meets with Pharaoh. God had sent plagues onto Egypt, and Pharaoh says to Moses, lift the plagues and I'll let your people go. And so what does Moses do? He prays to the Lord. He pleads with the Lord, lift the plagues. And the Lord does. And Pharaoh reneges on his side of the bargain. But, but the point's still there. The pleading from Moses, praying, was a, a prayer to lift the cursed, lift the plague. The prayer from Isaac here in verse 21 must have been something like that. Isaac trusts, he knows, he believes that children come from the Lord, that the promise comes from the Lord. But his prayer shows us that he also knows that barrenness is something that God is sovereign over. That's a truth that goes all the way back to the garden, as we just saw. So, so as Moses is pleading with the Lord to lift the plagues, Isaac is pleading, lift the barrenness. Grant us a child, Lord. And Isaac does this for 20 years. Verse 20 says, Isaac was 40 years old when they got married. And if they didn't have that baby in the next nine months, he got to think, okay, something's wrong. Verse 26 says he was 60 when the babies were born. So between 40 and 20 years. That means the barrenness and these prayers lasted 20 years. 20 years of Rebecca getting older and older and older and still no baby, no baby, no baby. But Isaac remains faithful. And he, he continues to trust that God will be faithful to his promise. And he continues to pray. This, this, just by way of application, this is the model for you and me. It's, it's typified in prayerfulness. This is a wonderful follow-up to James, wasn't it? James 5.13, if you're suffering, pray. Isaac is showing us here that the heart of submission, that, that heart of submission that James was teaching us about, Isaac has it. He knows that the Lord is the source of the covenant promise, and he's the fulfiller. The Lord alone is the fulfiller of the covenant promise. He also knows that the trial that he's enduring and that Rebecca is enduring, this is from the Lord. So the only way, the only thing he can do is to trust the Lord here. He has nowhere else to go. And if this is you, if you're entreating the Lord, asking the Lord for something that is in his revealed will, if you're praying for the, the salvation of your spouse or, or the salvation of one of your kids, follow Isaac's example and just keep praying. If you're praying for God's provision for your family, keep praying. If you're praying that you would grow in the faith, keep praying. If you're praying that you could overcome some sin, keep praying. And friends, if you are asking the Lord for children and he has not granted you that request, keep praying. Pray on your own in the morning and in the evening, and pray with your Christian brothers and sisters, and come join us this Wednesday and pray with us. We pray together as a church. The text continues in verse 21, and Moses tells us, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. 
Now, the first lesson that we need to learn about the grace of God then, as I told you, we're, we're learning about the grace of God this morning. The first lesson that we need to learn about the grace of God is this. The grace of God comes through the power of God alone. Isaac knew that. That's why he went to the Lord in prayer. It's not by Isaac's power or Rebekah's power that she conceived, but by the power of God, answer to prayer. The story's not over. This, the, the difficulty in childbearing promised to Eve is not over simply because Rebekah is now pregnant. This isn't one child, but two, and two brothers at that that are within her. And the brothers' theme has been another place of difficulty in Genesis, hasn't it? Just as Cain killed his younger brother Abel and Ishmael ridiculed his younger brother Isaac, verse 22 continues the saga of the brother hate. The children struggled within her. See that in verse 22? The children, children struggled within her. And when you read struggled here, don't think of someone struggling with math. Okay, Think of a wolf struggling with a lion. That's the, that's the sense of the word struggle here. The word translated struggle is usually in the Bible translated smashed or clashed or crushed. For instance, in the book of Judges, when a woman throws a stone from the wall, it crushes, same word, wicked Abimelech's head. In the Hebrew, Moses is telling us, you know that head bruising and heel bruising that God talked about in Genesis 3.15? Well, something like that is happening inside of Rebekah. That battle between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman is raging on in her womb. Even more interesting is the fact that Jacob's name means heel. So the heel, Jacob, is quite possibly being bruised by his brother in the womb. And we have to imagine Jacob has given Esau a few knocks in the head as well, hasn't he? Because they struggle with each other in the womb. So even though both of these twins are from Isaac and Rebekah, there's this cosmic battle happening inside the woman. This, this cosmic battle between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, it's happening inside Rebekah. And Rebekah, bless her heart, is in a lot of pain. So much pain, she can't even speak in complete sentences. Verse 22 continues. If it is thus, why is this? And then the ESV Bible inserts the word happening there. That's not in the original Hebrew. Literally, what Rebecca says, if thus, why then I? Which doesn't make any sense. The violence within her womb leads Rebecca to believe that either the children are going to die or she's going to die or all three of them are going to, are going to die and she's worried. She, she's wondering if God's answer to Isaac's prayer is really the answer that they were hoping for as a family. Has this happened to you? You plead with God for an end to some problem and he answers your prayer, but it only introduces a new problem. You ask God for a spouse, and he answers your prayer, but marriage turns out not to be the never-ending honeymoon that you thought it would be. You, you ask God for a new job with better pay, and he answers your prayer, but there are difficulties in your new job, and the hours are not great, and there's harder work, and your boss is a jerk. You ask God for a child, and he gives you a child, but the, but the baby has health issues. Or if she's healthy, it turns out she's like you. <laughs> in all the worst ways. 
in everything, in every answer to prayer, God is teaching us to depend on him. There's no answer to prayer wherein God makes you less reliant on him. Because dependence on God is our purpose. It's our design. God works in such a way that when he answers our prayers, we become not less dependent, but more thankful, more trusting, more dependent on him, because that is where we are most fully like Christ. And dependence, as we see here, is Rebecca's response, isn't it? Look at what verse 22 says she does in response to the war within her womb. So she went to inquire of the Lord. No doubt there are plenty of midwives that she could have talked to, plenty of older women around her camp that Rebecca could have talked to about pains in pregnancy and babies kicking. But the fact that she went to the Lord, what does that tell? It tells us that, that Rebecca is experiencing something that isn't ordinary. She knows that because she's married to Abraham's son, that she is carrying the child or children who will fulfill the promises made to Abraham. But something is gravely wrong, and she knows it. So she inquires of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, verse 23, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So what, what is the Lord telling? He says, from these two children, one will be chosen to carry on the covenant promise. One gets the Abraham promise, one doesn't. That's what is implied by the dividing that is going to take place. It's the same word that was used to describe what happened to Abraham and Lot. They divided. One continued on in the promise, the other departed. And God tells Rebekah that the older, the firstborn, will not be the chosen of the two nations. Instead, he will serve the younger child, be a slave to the younger child. The older will serve the younger child, or in future Future Bible terms, the descendants of Esau, who will be the Edomites, will be slaves or servants to the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites. And from this quote from the Lord here, from verse 23, we get the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth lessons about the grace of God. So are you ready for the next four lessons? We've already learned that God's grace comes by the power of God alone, right? Isaac had to depend on the Lord to bring the child. That was God's power that brought that grace to their family. As we continue to examine why God chose Jacob, we learn these truths. The second one is this. God's grace is not according to human convention. The third one, God's grace is not according to the works of man. The fourth one, God's grace is not according to our family. And the fifth one, God's grace is only according to God's good pleasure. So let's start with the first one, human convention. Human convention, culture, tradition, says what? That the older of these two boys should be the one to whom the inheritance is given. That's the way it works. The primogeniture, you get that the, first, the firstborn gets the stuff, the firstborn gets the promises, the firstborn gets the inheritance. By, and by inheritance, I mean the covenant promises given to Abraham, the land, the presence of God, the nation through whom the Christ will come. If we're up to human conventions and the traditions of the ancient Near East, the oldest of these two boys would get that prize. But God says, no, it's going to be the younger one. 
The younger one will be the son of the promise. God's grace doesn't follow our rules. We've seen this already, haven't we? Abraham looks for earthly national alliances for survival, tries to make these alliances with earthly nations. That's what led him to Pharaoh in Egypt. Lot looks to existing cities and what he thinks, according to human convention and human wisdom, is richness and a rich, fertile fertile earth. The, the, The cultural conventions... It says, if your wife is bearing, go to her servant as an alternative. That was, the, that was the convention of the day. And we see consistently, God's ways are not like our ways. That's Genesis. God's ways are not like our ways. And he'll continue to show us his ways are not like our ways all the way through the scriptures. God's grace isn't according to human convention. Third, God's grace is not given according to the works of man. Paul tells us in Romans 9, that God made his sovereign choice while the babies were still in the womb. Let me read from that passage and remind you. Romans 9, verses 10 to 12. This is not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who called She was told the older will serve the younger. It was not because of works that God chose Jacob. Jacob had not done anything. He had not done anything to deserve God's sovereign electing grace. And Esau has done nothing to keep God from choosing him. They are indistinguishable at this point. Same mom, same dad. Augustine says original sin, as far as original sin goes, they're equal. And as far as their personal sins go, neither has any. And if we were to look from there, from that moment, from there in Genesis 25, 23, and you look down through the corridors of time and say, okay, but which one of these boys will be a better leader? Which one will be better suited to lead a nation? Who do you pick then? Probably Esau. He's a hunter. He's an adaptable outdoorsman, as we'll soon see. And he, he has two wives, and they're problematic, but Jacob's family's worse. Jacob, by contrast to Esau, is a scoundrel, he's a liar, he's a cheat. And yet, in spite of who God knows Jacob will become, God chooses him anyway. And don't say that's not fair, because this is good news to you. If if God's grace only went to those who were deserving out of it, none of us would be saved. Not not one of us, neither Noah, nor Abraham, or Isaac, or Jacob, or Judah, or David, not even Mary. All the way down the line, none of them deserve to be the chosen people through whom God brings Christ the Redeemer. And neither are you and I worthy of the salvation that Christ the Redeemer brings. One of the things that Israel is meant to see here in their history, and what we're meant to see here as well, is that none of these people are good people. All of them are deeply flawed sinners. But God, being rich in mercy, freely chooses to work through them. So as we get back to that question, why did God choose me to receive salvation? You absolutely have to see what Paul teaches us in Romans 9. It's not because of anything in me. Just as it was not because of anything inherently in baby Jacob. And this this truth about God's grace 
lowers our always too high opinion of ourselves, doesn't it? And it elevates our always too low opinion of God. Whenever you learn of God's grace, it shouldn't cause you to say, that's not fair, God. As Paul says, who are we? Who are we to answer back to God? Rather, it should cause you to sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And as we sang earlier, salvation belongs to our God, not to our wise plans. Our salvation belongs to our God. The fourth truth we learn about God's grace is that God's grace is not according to our family lineage. Jacob and Esau had the same father. They have the same grandfathers going all the way back to Shem and then Noah and then to Seth. There's nothing in their blood to distinguish them from one another. And you got, God chooses one of them and not the other. Why? Paul says in Romans 9 that God chose according to his sovereign will, not according to the flesh. That's clear in Isaac's story, isn't it? God could just as well have chosen to work through Ishmael instead of Isaac. After all, both are children of Abraham. But it's not according to who your dad is that you're chosen. Neither Ishmael nor Esau receives the electing grace of God. And that leads us to the last conclusion we make, can make about God's grace. It's not according to human convention. If it's not according to human effort, it's not according to human lineage, then it is only according to God's will, God's good pleasure. So why did God choose Jacob? Because God chose Jacob. Romans 9 again. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. It's because of him who calls. It's, it's according to God's purpose of election, not man's convention, not man's works, not man's lineage, but God. Samuel tells the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob, in 1 Samuel 12, he says, It has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It's because of him who calls. It pleases the one who's called us. Sometimes when we come to this, to this discovery in the scriptures that God has chosen some and not others, we say, well, the God must have made an arbitrary decision. Right? If it's not according to something in us, then it must just be that God's drawing names out of the hat. Because of our man-centeredness, because we still have these vestiges of Adam who's always belly button staring, there, there are only, those are the only two choices we can imagine. Something in me, because I'm important, or God's just being random. Not so. It's not so. God chooses according to his purposes and for his good pleasure. Which is why Paul says, when he's, he's echoing Isaiah here, Paul's not, Genesis 9 doesn't just come out of the blue in the Bible, it's filled with scripture. So Paul is echoing Isaiah and he uses that potter and the clay metaphor. Why does the potter, out of one, clump of, lay, uh, one lump of clay, choose to make a cup that a king will use, and out of another lump of clay, make a drain pipe. Why does the potter do that? Because the potter is the potter. 
And the clay is not the potter, but the potted. We are his handiwork. Jacob's election and salvation and the nation of people that would come from him and our salvation, God's work in us is meant to reveal to all of creation the majesty of God's mercy and the glory of his grace. Do you understand that? God did not choose you because he saw that's going to be a holy one. He chose you in his mercy toward you so he could make you holy and magnify his glory. Think about that. When you get down on yourself because you feel like you're not good enough, you're trying hard, but you're not good enough, when you feel like you're, you're failing God, when you see in your life, you read, you read the rest of Jacob's story and you see in your life all those same scandals that are in Jacob's life. Remember this, God is glorified in revealing his mercy to you. When, you. when you look at your family and you see a mess, and you say, this isn't the type of family that God wants in his house, just wait, because you are going to see the most ridiculously messy family in Jacob's family. In fact, from here on out in Genesis, it's pretty much rated R. These are, the rest of this is stories we don't even tell in Sunday school to the little ones. It's all just dirty stuff. And yet, according to God's good pleasure, this is the family he chooses. Not because they're great, but so that the majesty of his mercy and the glory of his grace might be seen all the more vividly. This is why Christ's death is such a perfect picture of the glory of God. Because when when Jesus died for sinners, the mercy of God was on full display. And when something that central to who God is is put on display for all of creation, God is glorified in a way that he'd never been before. The angels had never seen that side of God before. Nothing in all creation had seen that side of God before. The full extent of the mercy of God where his own son would die. The cross was not plan B. It was always God's plan to make his greatness known more fully than even in creation itself. The sixth truth about God's grace is this. It comes not according to the will of man, but of God. Look here at our last section in Genesis 25. When her days to give birth, this is verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, held his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Now, just, just pause here. Esau does not mean Harry. Um, Esau actually means something akin to made already complete, fully assembled. As it were. The, the image that Moses is painting here is that this baby looks like a little man. He, he came out already looking like a grown man. Hence, he is Esau. He's complete. He is as, as, as earthy and as masculine as a baby could possibly be, and no doubt probably really ugly. <laughs> Afterward, verse 26, Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. It's the only description of, of this guy. He's, he's, all he's known for is his, hand, his heel holding. His brother came out, his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. 
Now, as I told you earlier, Jacob is similar in Hebrew to the word for heal. But more accurately, it means something like to be at another's steps. In other words, he's an opportunist. Today, we might call him coattails because he, he, he gets in holding on to someone else's coattails. But the name Jacob is also similar to the Hebrew word for cheater. So it's fitting later on in chapter 27 when Jacob tricks Isaac a second time and he gets the blessing from, uh, uh, he steals the blessing from Esau. Esau gets upset and Esau says this, Is he not rightly named Jacob, Jacob, for he has cheated me, Jacobe, these two times? His name means cheater. So there at the beginning, the very beginning of their story, you have the little man, Esau, the complete, and the little scoundrel, Jacob, the heel. And they're fighting all the way through the womb, all the way up through birth. And it's almost as if Jacob has grabbed Esau's heel heel either to, to make exiting the womb a little easier on himself, or he's trying to pull Esau back in so he can supersede him and he can come out first. That's the nine-month battle that they've been enduring, and that's pretty much how life will continue on for these boys. Verse 27 says, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And that's going to be important next week or a couple weeks from now. Verse 28, this is what I want you to see. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, because he is the firstborn and because he is earthy and masculine and because he feeds his father's appetite, Esau has earned his father's favor. But Jacob doesn't have his father's affection. Were it up to Isaac, in Isaac's will and his choices and his desires, Esau, not only because he's the firstborn, but also because he's the favorite, he would be the chosen son. We see that plainly in chapter 27. Esau is trying, or Isaac is trying to give Esau the, the blessing. Isaac wants Esau as the chosen one, and yet God overruled the authority of Isaac. And God chose Jacob. Why? That's the question we've been asking today. And the answer is this, so that God could show that his grace comes not by the strength of man, but by the power of God. Not by the convention of man, but, by God's, but according to God's purposes. Not by the works of man, but by the work of God, so that no man can boast. Not according to the family that we're born into, but by the sovereign adoption of the Father. Not according to anything in us, but according to God's good pleasure. Not according to the will of man. Not according to Isaac's desires, but according to God's good and perfect will. Here's why my why Machen at the beginning of our sermon says that the center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. Because we're seeing the grace of God there and we're a little confused by it. But Machen says that, that the center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace in God because Jesus Christ is the center of the Bible. At the cross, the Savior of the world, the promised descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus is lifted up Elevated, not according to human power, but according to human weakness, isn't he? That's contrary to 
our convention, contrary to our strength. It's all God's power there. And his, his crowning as king of all creation is also not according to human convention. Because the way that we think about crowning a king is we, we, we use a crown of gold and, and purple robes. But Jesus Christ was given a crown of thorns. And he's lifted up, he's exalted by being nailed to a Roman torture device. And Jesus' finished work proved once for all that it would not be according to our work that would be acceptable before God, but according to the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus' work took salvation beyond family, didn't it? He, he took salvation beyond the blood family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his atoning blood was poured out into all the world so that you and me would be brought into the covenant promise, not according to our family, but according to our adoption, our adoption through faith. And he proved, Jesus proved, he was always this way. That's what Romans 9 is about. It was always this way. And this was all, this whole plan of God was all to the praise of his glorious grace for God's good pleasure, not according to the will of man, but according to the will of God. So why did God choose Jacob, not Esau? So that God could show beyond a shadow of a doubt that what he was doing to redeem Israel and the world and you was all his working and not our own. Let's praise him.